the theme this morning uh, is to link uh, the impact of genomics uh, with the current public health emergency associated with COVID. It's often said uh, that the UK is in a strong position in healthcare, whether you're looking at uh, Britain in a post-Brexit world or whether you have a different view of Brexit, it doesn't matter actually. Uh, the UK has some particular assets uh, in, that, in thinking through the future of healthcare. We've often lift, listed them. Uh, of course, the existence of a single payer system in the National Health Service, the strength of our pharmaceutical in industry, the strength of our research base in our universities. And in recent years, we've quite often referred in that context to the 100,000 genome project and the fact that genomic science has, a partic has particularly strong roots in the UK. And it's, what they, it's to look at that particular theme of British healthcare and the opportunities that it presents uh, for us uh, that we've focused this breakfast. And we're extremely fortunate to have three key opinion formers in this space with us this morning. I'm going to take the unusual step of introducing all three of them together in order to illustrate the way in which uh, we propose to conduct the conversation this morning. The first speaker will be Professor Ewan Burney, who's the director of EMBLEBI. Now, if you come from a humanities background as I do, you'd prefer not to uh, think only in terms of strings of letters, but to understand what those letters stand for. Uh, and in this case, it's the European Molecular Biology Lab, uh, which developed in Cambridge, uh, the European Bioinformatics Institute. Been exists in existence for 25 years. It employs 800 people in Cambridge. It is an international information exchange about bioinformatics and genomics. And uh, we'll be hearing first the role that uh, his organization can play from Professor uh, Ewan Burney, who's the director of the MBL uh, EBI. Then we'll be hearing from Chris Wigley, who's the relatively recently appointed chief executive of Genomics England. Whereas uh, the EBI has been established for 25 years, Genomics England was established in 2013 with the objective of translating science into care in order to build on this aspect of science in England and to translate theory into practice. And then finally, uh, we'll be hearing from Professor Sir Mark Caulfield, who's been engaged in the development of this field for a lot longer uh, than either the two organizations that uh, we uh, that we'll have heard from first, and he will be looking at how genomics uh, can develop and help us with the particular emergency we deal with in the co we, we face in the context of COVID. So our first speaker, therefore, is Ewan Burney, Director of the European uh, Biometrics Institute since 2015. He has a long list of uh, distinguished academic citations, which I don't propose to repeat, uh, but simply to say, you and you're extremely welcome, and we look forward to uh, hearing what you have to say about the international context of the work that you're doing, uh, you and Bernie. Great, thank you very much, and uh, thanks for inviting me uh, to this uh, breakfast. It's the way to do this, clearly. Um, uh, so just a bit of context about EMBL, the European Molecular Biology Laboratory. Um, uh, that was founded in 1974, and it was the pre-EU way of doing federal science across Europe. Um, we're in the same family as CERN, so we are a European that the UK is part of, and we are not directly linked to the EU. This was a, a, an oddity uh, five years ago. It obviously became incredibly important, and that means that MBLEBI, which is based in Cambridge, the institute I direct, is not is Brexit-proof. Um, we store the world's data, biomolecular data. The most iconic data set is the human genome. When people talk about the reference human genome, 
That is stored and maintained by colleagues at Emble EBI. But it's not just humans, it's humans, it's mice, it's platypus, it's bacteria, and it is viruses as well. So we go from the human to the virus in terms of the genome. And it's not just the genome. So the genome is the blueprint um, in our bodies that make um, uh, that give the instructions to every cell about how to make the different cells and different proteins. But we record the genome, the proteins, protein structures, the chemical biology, and the literature from scientists that try and unravel this. So that's why there are 800 people, and that's why it's quite complicated. Now, in this setting, there has been a big shift of genomics coming into healthcare. So previously, there's been about 30 years where genomics has been used as a real linchpin of research, of basic fundamental research. But arguably about five years ago in the UK led in this area from Genomics England, uh, healthcare has been pushed, um, genomics has been pushed into the healthcare. And that's true both at the human genome area, which Chris and Mark will uh, explore more, but also at, for example, the infectious biology layer well, which is including tuberculosis genomes, salmonella genomes, and in this case, COVID-19 or SARS and COV-2, which is less catchy to say, viral genomes. So just a little thought here about the response and the crisis of, of our own organization. The virus doesn't have ethics or rights, and so we're allowed to aggregate the viral genome across the planet um, uh, in one location. There is a little bit of science politics uh, here, which we will gloss over, um, but in effect, the viral genomes are all accessible to researchers and increasingly accessible uh, where they come from. However, that's not the case for the host, the humans. So humans obviously have ethics rights, and uh, uh, one, when one measures lots and lots of humans, one does it in the context of healthcare. And so there we have to have federation. That is, there are, half a million Danes who have been genotyped, the half a million Brits that have been genotyped and are being sequenced, and there are even more Brits coming down the pipe uh, due to Genomics England and others. And in those locations, we are unlikely to download or allow full population downloads of our healthcare system uh, plus genomics to locations for researchers. So in that situation, we invert this and we allow researchers from around the world, bona fide researchers, to come and visit data sets. Um, and this is again something that Genomics England has been a trailblazer for. And at Emble EBI, we realized that this inversion was going to happen. And uh, so we uh, have helped set up global standards to allow researchers to access data sets in a federated manner. And this is a bit like the protocols. These are protocols, internet protocols, to allow information to flow. We are all currently using a host of internet protocols right now. You did it in all sorts of different ways when you brought up your Zoom window. Um, and in the same way that you forget that somebody wrote down those protocols and there was a whole process of deciding how two computers work together, um, uh, we are aiming the same sort of thing for genomics. That is that genomic information and analysis can happen, for example, between Japan and the UK or between the US and Japan or US and the UK. Um, and if we do our job right, um, uh, we forget about the existence of those protocols because it just becomes natural. That organization um, is called the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, GA for GH. I'm sorry, Stephen, another set of acronyms. Um, and um, uh, I chair that organization, and that's become an important framework for having this discussion about federation. So there is aggregation of the viral genome and of fundamental biology facts. So there's aggregation of the reference human genome. There's one site, in effect, uh, that handles the reference human genome, but then there's federation of individual level genomes, uh, many of them in Genomics England. And with that, I will hand over to, I think, the next speaker. Well, thank you very much, Ewan. That gives us a, a clear overview of the technical issues that you're seeking to address. And Chris Wigley, who's been a chief exec of uh, Genomics England, only since 2019, but taken over at a very 
exciting times. Going to speak next. Uh, Chris was previously with McKinsey's and uh, also unusual source for genomic expertise, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, uh, but uh, now ensconced as Chief Exec of, of Genomics England. Chris. Yeah, thanks. Um, so no, I, I tend to use the word uh, career more as a, uh, a verb than a noun, um, but um, we've been very excited to join uh, Genomics England just uh, six months ago. And um, as you say, an exciting time for Genomics England, an exciting time for um, this area of science. The UK has, of course, been a leader in this since the days of uh, Darwin, Rosalind Frank, uh, many others, uh, you and Bernie, we might say, um, <laughs> just to embarrass him. Um, and one of the things that um, struck me as I came into this space last autumn was that there was a lot going on. Um, there is a huge amount of um, entrepreneurial, uh, scientific, industrial uh, endeavor in this space. Um, and it was just at that time as well that we started working, um, the, the three of us today and, and others, on um, trying to align all this activity into a national strategy around genomics and healthcare. Um, the strategy is in draft form at the moment, it's not yet published. I'll just touch on the, the headlines of that to give a sense of um, how these pieces fit together. Um, before I dive into that, a tiny bit of context about the 100,000 Genomes Project, which you had alluded to and which um, Mark led um, with uh, Sue Hill and others at the NHS. So this was um, a partnership between Genomics England and uh, the various, various parts of the NHS, uh, sort of scientific genomic leadership. Um, and this really is sitting at the interface of um, research on the one hand, um, sampling and sequencing um, participants in the program, generating huge amounts of data um, with those volunteers and then making it accessible to accredited researchers, um, but then critically feeding those insights back into the healthcare system. So both to those individuals returning the results of the, um, of the sequencing and the bioinformatic um, analytics that we do to understand what's, uh, what's happening with someone, particularly if they have a rare disease or cancer. Um, but also we can feed those insights back into healthcare um, at the level of um, disease insights, at the level of um, what we call genotype-phenotype relationships. So how do we relate this thing that we can see in the gene to a phenotype or sort of presentation of a symptom that a, um, that a patient has? Um, so the, the 100,000 genomes have sequenced, the um, analytics work has principally been done on that, and, and most of the results um, have been fed back to patients. There are a handful of complicated cases which are still going on. Um, and so we're now really looking at the sort of next chapter of that work, which feeds directly into this national strategy um, around how do we mainstream this as um, a core part of a, of a future health system, which is participatory, um, so people are engaged in their own um, care, which is predictive. We can start to use um, both someone's, someone's own family history and medical history and also their um, genetic data to make predictions about, um, about their health in the future, um, and which is personalized. There's a great quote from Eric Topol saying, um, these days we, we realize more and more that every disease is a rare disease because it's in you. Um, so how do we um, deal with the individual as we um, put, as we help people through different uh, care pathways? So in terms of this um, national strategy, we sort of anchored around three big pillars of work. The first being um, fundamental research. So institutions like the CRIC, um, like many of the uh, academic institutions, um, what can we learn about the fundamentals of what's happening in the science here? Um, the second area being the interface of um, the applied end of that research and clinical delivery. And that's where, for example, the Genomics England and NHS partnership um, sits very firmly. Um, and the third being around um, predictive analytics and public health. So um, with new technologies like um, polygenic risk scores, which can start to um, generate statistical insights about the likelihood of um, an individual having particular conditions, um, that's another um, element of this sort of predictive and personalized um, health system that we uh, will want to see. So research, interface of research and clinical delivery and um, predictive um, analytics and public health being these three uh, pillars of work. Um, each of them though, back to you and theme about interoperability being linked by um, some cross-cutting areas of collaboration. So. Um, at the heart of this is um, ethics and trust and patient choice. 
um, this, this is incredibly sensitive data about large numbers of people. We need to make sure that um, participation and choice is at the heart of everything that we're doing. Otherwise, we um, otherwise we're not just doing the wrong thing, but we we um, we risk um, the whole approach we're taking. Um, public engagement, which is obviously linked to that, but slightly different, um, in that the the patient choice is about people who are um, either sick or who are participating in a program, um, who, who tend to be quite well educated about their condition, often um, often extremely well educated um, on a on a given niche area. Um, whereas there's also a need to kind of engage the wider public who who may not be sick, who may not have engaged deeply in these topics, um, with um, with thinking about um, health and data and how we um, how we think those those things through. Um, and there's, there are also large um, areas that um, we have where we have an opportunity to bring new skills into the workforce um, en masse with sort of um, both training and uh, on the job learning um, in order to do this and then all of the underpinning uh, infrastructure as well. So we're um, obviously the timelines for publishing things like this get uh, slightly knocked by uh, COVID but we're hoping the, the detailed work on that will be out in the summer but that hopefully gives you a sense of how we're piecing this together. So and research, um, clinical delivery and uh, predictive health linked by these kind of cross-cutting um, themes. Um, and that's, that's the machine really which um, we can kind of gear up to respond to um, crises like the, um, the COVID crisis and we need all of these um, elements, um, research, clinical, um, analytics, trust, um, engagement, interoperable data and so on in order to be able to move fast. Um, and Mark is going to give us an overview of how that machine is sort of gearing up on both the viral sequencing and uh, human sequencing front um, as we speak in this current crisis. Chris, thank you very much that you've introduced to Mark Caulfield uh, as well as anyone could. Really, essentially, it's the move from the uh, the general to the specific, and Sir Mark has been the chief scientist, uh, chief uh, scientist at Genomics England uh, since it was founded. So, Sir Mark, we're honoured that you're with us. Extremely uh, pleased you're here, and looking forward to what you have to say about how uh, genomics can help us with COVID, and indeed, of course, more generally. Sir Mark. So, thank you, Stephen. Thanks everybody for joining. I'm going to share with you a little bit about the robustness of the United Kingdom's response to COVID in terms of genomics. So yesterday there were estimated 1.2 million cases of COVID-19 and 70,700 deaths across the world. In the United Kingdom, 51,608 people have tested positive and sadly 5,373 of our citizens have died. Though the United Kingdom to respond to this organized a special group called the COVID Genomics UK group. And that has focused on how we could apply knowledge of the genome, uh, both in viruses and humans, to create better outcomes. What I'm inviting you to imagine is that within the virus itself, there may be features that cause the infection to be very severe. There may also be within human factors that make our response to that infection very vigorous and actually quite damaging to us as humans. And then there may be a combination of what the virus presents in its genome and what we have in our genome, but we don't know yet that. So the first program that the government have funded with 20 million pounds is a very detailed analysis of the viral genome across the NHS in the United Kingdom. Why would we want to do that? We would want to understand from that how we can infer that new cases have, have been transmitted locally. Uh, what are the imported cases? So in the 850 viruses that have been sequenced so far in this program, which has been going for just over a week, we can now see viruses that have come from different parts of the world, and we can see changes between different types of the same virus, the mutations that make the virus potentially more lethal, or indeed much more benign if it mutates in a certain way. So we'll be able to look at how the epidemic will grow and we'll be able to make some estimates of within country movement of the virus uh, and enable us to monitor the interventions and treatments, including vaccines and some of the therapies that we bring to bear to try and support people who are severely ill. 
So this will allow us to build up a comprehensive inventory, as Ewan described earlier, and that will be shared with the world uh, so that we enhance the global understanding, because this is not obviously a UK fight in itself. In terms of the human genome, we know that it is possible to inherit response to disease, and we know that some people have very severe responses to disease. Imagine that you have a change somewhere in your 3.3 billion letters that would be totally benign if you had never met the SARS-CoV-2 virus. But when you meet that, the combination of that virus and your genome gives you too vigorous a response to the virus and places you at risk, might land you in intensive care, or even sadly cause you to lose your life. So what we're trying to do in Genomics England is to come up with a plan, which we now have, to sequence a number of the very severely ill patients, particularly the younger ones, who are likely to have a more inherited predisposition to an adverse response to the virus. We're linking that in to a national endeavor around approved trials from the National Institute for Health Research. And what that will allow us to do is to combine the interventions that are tested in our intensive care units and across our hospitals and in the community with whole genome sequencing. Whole genome sequencing reads, reads as much of the 3.3 billion letters that make you the individual you are, but also can carry susceptibility to disease. By combining this, the United Kingdom will have a unique portfolio of research to address the current pandemic and will, I believe, make a major contribution to worldwide understanding of how we can fight this disease. Because even when we surmount the current um, outbreak, there is a risk of a secondary and tertiary wave of those. And we know from the 1918 flu pandemic that can be more serious. Okay, so Mark, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that the statistic you quoted, which gave me most uh, pause for concern, was that in a week you've got 850 different variants of what the layman thinks of as uh, a COVID virus, and analysing that and understanding how it mutates and how it develops as it spreads through the community. Uh, it must presumably be at the heart of the, uh, of the science that you're working on. Yes, so the, um, that committee is chaired by Sharon Peacock from Public Health England. And what they're actually doing is reading viral swabs that are taken from affected individuals. So although that work was done in a week, it reflects a longer period of viral exposure. Uh, because the mutations occur a little bit more slowly than that. But what we can tell is there is more than one type of this virus, and it, we're now in the process through her group, uh, working at the Sanger Centre in Cambridge and across the labs in our universities in the NHS, to correlate the viral mutations with outcomes for patients. So let's find out what the worst type of virus to be exposed to. And that may help us shape the interventions, Stephen, for the future. Okay. Thank you. Just, just to stress, it may well be that the, there is very little about the response due to the viral genome. Yes. So, 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 so the the null hypothesis that it just evolves randomly is should be our null hypothesis. Okay. Uh, the the last thing to the, the 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 worst way to use the time that we have available to us uh, would be for this to be a dialogue between me and our guests. So what I propose to now is to invite all participants on this call, uh, if you would, to contribute uh, through the chat function. I have a chat screen in front of me, uh, and hopefully, if Zoom is doing its work, uh, anyone who has a comment or a question that they would uh, like to put to any of our three guests uh, or to contribute to the discussion, uh, please don't bother to put the whole uh, text into the chat function, but if you simply send uh, a chat notice, uh, then I can uh, bring you into the conversation. Uh, but while I wait for people to get their screen, get their uh, keyboards moving, uh, can I come back? Um, the question that I guess uh, right across the country people will be asking uh, this morning and indeed continue to ask all the time uh, is the, the, the assumption or the, the belief is that because we understand uh, genomics better than we used to and we have, we've, we've developed an understanding of genomic science, uh, this should enable us to get more quickly 
to an effective vaccine and to a treatment therapy for people who suffer from this disease. Is that a correct layperson's understanding or is it an oversimplification? I suspect it's the latter. Can I start with Samar? It is more complex than that, Stephen, uh, but I think you're not far off. I think it's just um, there's so much that we don't know yet about this virus or its implications. Um, we haven't really faced a worldwide viral uh, epidemic since HIV on this scale. And so there is so much to learn from this. What I think we have done is to mobilize the combined research endeavor of institutes like uh, the European Bioinformatics Institute, where Ewan is head, and also uh, in entities like Genomics England, we're combining those forces to try and answer these questions. So I think you're, you're correct to summarize in the way you are, but I think uh, we would be able to answer that better in a few weeks or months time. Uh, being naturally impatient. Uh, I think Michael, uh, Mika, uh, forgive me if I don't pronounce it right, Michael O'Regan uh, is on the same point on uh, chat. So, Michael, would you like to come in? And I see Patricia Hewitt has also raised a hand in a second. So, uh, but can we go with Michael first? Hi, it's Michaela from the Cystic Fibrosis Trust. Um, it was really interesting to hear that you were saying there's a lot of different strains of the same virus and it varies from geography. So to understand this a bit better, so there isn't necessarily one treatment, it would depend on the strain you have. So even when treatments start coming to market, what would be the time frame for all these different treatments? Because surely it's, that would just indicate it's becoming a lot more complicated than people understand with just one vaccine, one treatment. So, so there are a number of different strains. There's not very many of them. There's a few that we've seen, uh, six to eight at the moment. They're, they're the same virus. They're just like, they just harbor different mutation. But as Ewan said earlier, that's quite normal. And it doesn't necessarily make the virus worse. With regard to your um, a question about treatment, there are studies started with several hundred people enrolled already using existing medicines, which we have prior knowledge might modify uh, disease response, and they're being deployed in patients with severely ill pre-ventilation and also in those who are ventilated. And there are now research plans to take medicines that we already have, and that's what we can do now, uh, into patients. They include antivirals, they include uh, medicines that might modify the response to the disease, steroids, hydroxychloroquine, and there is now a vaccine in trial. Now, all of the new things will take months or years to develop, but repurposing, in other words, taking something that we already have, mobilizing it and testing in research, that can be quite quick. And the government, the National Institutes for Health Research are prioritizing the trials with the strongest likelihood of success. So we maximize enrollment, get the fastest possible results, and are able then to convert that into direct healthcare. But I don't yet know how that will turn out. Yeah. Uh, just to perhaps add to this, I think the UK's done a very good thing about having a an adaptive trial framework, which yeah. is effectively a compressed early trial system. So this is the clever modern way of doing clinical trials, where you you um, open and close down arms, uh, so different treatment possibilities as soon as you decide whether they work or not. And so there is a big adaptive trial happening in the UK. There is a, a quite a big adaptive trial happening across the EU. And then there's a far less, far more straightforward traditional trial happening worldwide sponsored by WHO. Um, and as Mark says, the, the first shots through those trials will be repurposing drugs. Actually on the human side, there is a big range of drugs which you know, one could imagine might have an effect because the, the, some of the response is effectively an over-response of the human immune system. And we have a lot of drugs that dampen the human immune system, but working through which ones are the most likely and which ones are the ones really to set through that, that pipeline is very, very complex. And that is an area where human genetics might really give us a win. That is to say, indeed, it's this part of the human immune system that is overreacting um, and therefore it's this class of drugs that we should go and test. Um, so that for me is one of the uh, early wins. 
in all of these things, I'm afraid there's a huge amount of uncertainty about how the virus works, but there's a huge, even bigger amount of uncertainty about treatments. And so yeah. please do not think that there is some kind of master plan that one can just roll out. Yeah. Um, this is having many, many, many shots on goal uh, to change the biology of the virus or to change the biology of the humans. Patricia, uh, you'll need to unmute yourself. Okay, thank Hi. you. Hi, Stephen. Good to see everybody. And thank you for wonderful, really interesting um, presentations. I'm a complete beginner on this stuff. I should say I chair the Norfolk and Waveney Health and Care System. Um, what, I'm, what I wanted to know was how quickly can you sequence the genome of a patient who is admitted to hospital and tests positive for uh, COVID-19. And are we currently sequencing all patients who are in hospital and are tested positive? Do we have the capacity to do that? Is that something we ought to be doing? I don't know Mark, if you wish. Mark. So, so um, as Mark mentioned, this goes currently, so there's a difference here between testing and sequencing. It's really important mm -hmm. to make. So there's two different types of tests, as I'm sure you've heard. Um, the PCR test, also known as the antigen test by, by old school epi people like Chris Whitty, um, is, the, is the major uh, testing that's being done at the moment. And that is appropriate for being sequenced. The UK's setup by Public Health England is, um, is quite comprehensive. It has a scale-out system at the Sanger, and it has a network of very rapid sequencing sites across the UK. Um, and uh, so there are many places that certainly conceptually one could do a 24-hour turnaround. Uh, there, there's an awful lot of logistics. There's a huge amount of logistics here, so one, one very rarely hits those numbers. But just to say the actual process itself is, is that uh, small. Um, but I want to emphasize that the, most that the most important thing is the testing cycle. That is the thing that really uh, impacts the, the practical care and the sequencing cycle it may become important, but at the moment, the sequencing cycle is, is effectively a research component. So at the moment, we don't have any piece of knowledge about how to use the viral sequence differences in clinical care. So if, if, if that did become an important thing, then you would want to work out how to get your logistics to work really, really quickly inside of clinical care. Um, but the most important thing is to get the testing cycle really, really quick. Um, which is just the PCR test, and then a subset of those going into the sequencing research. I hope I, hope I haven't been too technical. All right, my, my apologies. I was thinking actually of sequencing the human DNA. Ah, so oh. sequencing the human, the human host. Are we doing that as uh, well as... So I'll hand that one over to Mark. <laughs> so, um, thanks, that's a really great question. Uh, we're in the process of preparing the ground to do that at scale, hopefully sequencing uh, at least 20,000 um, severely ill people. Ewan made a very important point. Uh, there is the testing program that is essentially part of routine and usual care in the NHS. That's a clear test. The sequencing of the human um, and the sequencing of the virus itself are still research tools that will inform later knowledge. So the impact of anything we do now in humans uh, may be very small in terms of individuals, but will give us a great pool of knowledge that can help us in the secondary and tertiary waves of this and may help us in future similar pandemics because we've never been able to do this before. Now, there will be individuals, some of you will have seen that some young people have died, there may be individuals who have rare changes in their DNA that make them extremely susceptible to infection, and, and we may be able to detect those. Um, in terms of turning around a, sequ a sequence, as Ewan said, you can do it fairly quickly, but we're in days with humans uh, because of the nature of it, when, and it's very complex to analyze. It's quite likely when we start this, we will find things only at a population level because we need many people to see 
the impact of the variant on the infection outcome. But, but there will be some people, and we will look for this, who may have very rare reasons for why they've become severely ill. What's up? Okay. Sorry, Chris. Yes, go on. Thanks. Um, uh, yeah, so I was just going to, um, I think, reflect one of the comments in the side panel, um, which I think plays into this as well, pointing out that um, genomics is obviously only one lens of this. And so a lot of the, um, within the healthcare system at the moment, in the treatment flows, we also have lots of other information which can be useful. So, for example, what kinds of other conditions do um, people have? Um, what, what we call comorbidities. So does someone present with an, an existing lung condition? Um, are they a smoker? Do they have a family history of um, heart conditions? Um, what age are they? Um, where have they been referred to? Where have they been referred from? Have they come from home? Have they come from another hospital? Have they come from um, care? Um, and so there are lots and lots of these different uh, sort of features about a person which we can also um, start to feed into um, modeling about um, what's the likely response to uh, treatment, um, how, extreme, how extremely are they likely to um, respond. And that's, that's at the sort of um, you know, modeling stage at the moment, but there are, um, there are sort of, uh, there's a line of sight to that being clinically useful. And then I think the idea of having this, these linked parts of research and clinical is that as we find things out in research, once we have the sort of patient pathways set up, we can start to enrich those patient pathways with more and more of the insights that are being developed on the research side. And, it, and it's by bringing those two pieces together and continually enriching the clinical side over time that we get towards that vision of a sort of learning healthcare system where the research can feed directly into clinical care. Okay. Uh, well, people can see there's a lot of questions now coming in. So what I'm suggesting we do now is that we take three uh, contributions together and see uh, and ask our guests to respond to them. So Yash Kansal uh, has uh, got a comment here about the basic stern facial inhalation. Yash, do you want to uh, comment on that? You'll need to unmute yourself. No, you need to unmute yourself. You need to unmute yourself, uh, Yash. I can see you're speaking. But. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's a uh, very uh, good afternoon. Or afternoon. I'm in Goa at the moment in a nice sunny place. Um, I'm, thank you for allowing me to speak to you. Very briefly, apparently in Wuhan and also in India and China, I'm ex-pharmacist, they have using a very basic technique of using a steam and inhalation and a wix and things like that. And apparently the whole idea is to get rid of this mucus, which is in the throat, which causes a problem in the lungs. Now, apparently steam does a lot of medical things, I'm sure you know that. I, in my old days, I used to use Wicks vaporizer and all sort of stuff to, hum to fumigate the room for people who suffer from asthma and all that thing. I was just wondering, could we go for very basic rather than going to this genomics and all that, for which we have no answer at the moment. It would take a long, long time to get an answer. And the second thing is my, I don't know, I'm not going to, uh, convert you guys into my guru. Apparently this particular product which I send you is called Hing in India. It's a very smelly product. It's used in a spice. Apparently, if you take a little bit of it in the food, apparently it gets rid of the virus. Apparently it kills them, according to my guru. So please don't take it as, a, a, take it as an antidote, an antidote. So I would appreciate if uh, somebody could try it out uh, in, in the <laughs> hospital food maybe, you know, which is uh, not very expensive and it might do the trick and it saved the NHS a lot of bills and all the headaches. Um, okay, thank you. thank you. Thank you very much. Could I also call on uh, Doug Shepardigan? Doug? Are you there? I can't actually see your thing. Trying to unmute. Can you hear me yeah. now? Yes, we can. I, I picked up a, a Rubik's Cube here. There are 850 virus variants. Uh, people react differently and people have different genotypes. I'm curious what our panel thinks is the most productive line of inquiry. If I heard right, maybe the variance in the virus is not interesting, but as a, as a layman, it, it sounds quite complicated. Well, so, um, so, I, uh, I don't know. Yeah, um, I mean, it is complicated. Um, 
you know, human geneticists and viral, uh, viral biologists have been dealing with this complexity in both sides for a long time. So it's not like it's the concept is novel, uh, but we really need to do a lot of research incredibly quickly. So I think that probably the, the, the biggest challenge ahead of us is, is, um, is not just that these things are complicated, but that we need to understand that complexity incredibly quickly to have a substantial impact on the outcome of the pandemic. As I mentioned, from my perspective, I think one of the best shots on goal we have is understanding the human, the genetics of the immune response that happens in severe diseases. So if you want to put my bet on, on where, we, where we would get the most understanding, it's through that. There is a huge international group of scientists who are gearing up to take the results of the matching of viral sequences to human genomes, um, some of which will come from Genomics England, some of which comes through other projects in Denmark and Finland in particular, those two countries in particular. Um, and we will undoubtedly be in a position to ask these questions in the next couple of months. Um, so the, then the question is, 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 you know, is that the way the biology really works out? So again, there is no kind of master plan where once we get to that point, we will definitely have answers. Sometimes you get a, a great answer and other times you have to scratch your head and go backwards and, and rethink. But, but conceptually, it's important to realize Conceptually, we've been doing human genetics for 20 years uh, of this sort, and conceptually, we've been looking at viruses for a good 20, 30 years. So it's not like either the two components are completely novel uh, to us. Thank you. Okay, can I suggest uh, Christine Hancock, Tim Hubbard, and Vinetta Balta Bala all, all contribute? Uh, Christine. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you for three really interesting presentations. So um, my comments have been partly picked up, I think, in other comments, but I've always been uh, worried about personalized medicine approaches as to the potential to widen the social di distancing, the social disparities um, that exist in our system and indeed in everybody's system. Um, and so I was particularly interested in Chris talking about how to engage with a wider public. We have a it's a longer issue, but we have a community engagement program that works with low-income uh, communities in an environment um, all on hold at the moment because it requires uh, physical face-to-face -face, uh, contact. Um, and I think the racial issue has been picked up, I think, by Ewan and by other, other comments. But I think some of that um, isn't coming through. Maybe it's too early um, in terms of those differences which exist in most of our healthcare issues and certainly exist in the underlying health conditions. C3 is about uh, preventing the main risk factors and if you look at the underlying health conditions, they're all those, their obesity, their smoking, um, that are coming through hypertension, they're all in those preventable chronic disease areas um, mm -hmm. that I think are showing us so important. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, Tim. Yeah, I put something in the chat about electronic health records, which uh, Chris has also uh, mentioned and Mark has replied as well. Um, obviously, I mean, actually, this is coming at a time when there has been a lot more coordination in the UK to make it possible to do research over patient records. I think Ewan mentioned that it's been difficult to access human information because of privacy concerns. Genomics has pioneered being able to work in an environment where you can do analysis without breaking privacy and that's something that's now being more broadly addressed through Health Data Research UK. So I mean, a colleague, of, I'll put this in the chat, a colleague of mine at King's has you know, built a system over the whole hospital system of King's College Hospital um, to process all those records and use that for COVID. I mean, questions like what's the effects of ACE inhibitors? Does it affect outcomes? You can actually go mining if you can work out how to do that kind of analysis and look for phenotype relationships directly in the electronic records. And that will be very useful to combine with the genetic information, um, phenotype, genotype, 
correlations. It's difficult to get all the phenotype information, but there is a lot that's buried in those electronic health records. It's going to be the same with images as well. Thank you. And that's looking at the variations within the patient. Vinetta's question is, is asking the extent to which it's possible to track viral mutation uh, through these initiatives. Vinetta, do you want to add to that? Oh, well, in fact, it's already been answered by Tim. So, uh, Mark, do you want to comment on, on uh, the, what you've heard from Tim and Christine Hancock? So, uh, Chris and I would um, place engagement across all sections of society and the diversity of the United Kingdom population being represented in any research at the heart of everything we do. Um, we succeeded in achieving that in the 100,000 Genomes Project. and. Um, where we will be piloting our study, we hope, um, in an inner city community representing up to 197 different nationalities, many of whom are in the worst end of the deprivation scale. And Christine makes an important point. Many of the people with severe outcomes have had other illnesses alongside um, the viral infection uh, that may have weakened their ability to respond and survive the event. So comorbidities, uh, other illnesses that coexist are really important. And then the next thing is that we, we have a 35 strong participant panel and the program we're proposing in humans has been before them and has resounding support um, to go ahead. And so I think it's really important uh, what's said. And Tim makes a very important point about big data. Big data allows you to make niche insights that you can't make if you simply collect things based on your prior knowledge. So having Big data sets from the NHS at this time, such as they're doing in King's, are vital to the success of our response to this and to understand things that we will miss otherwise because we don't think to collect that data. Yeah, and just, to, just to underline that, I think the point about equity of access um, is really one of the foundational principles of why Genomics England exists. Um, because without a national um, lens on this, you could quite happily see pockets of excellence develop in places like Addenbrooke's in Cambridge or um, Oxford or Manchester or wherever. Um, but if you live in Sunderland or Cornwall, kind of bad luck. Um, and so one of, the, one of the founding principles of um, Genomics England, along with the founding principles of the NHS, is around equity of access. So we have um, seven genomic laboratory hubs um, in England. And we work with programs in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. There are 13 genomic medicine centers which uh, have coverage of the whole um, country um, with, the, with absolutely at the heart of everything that we do being it's um, access dependent on need, not dependent on um, ability to pay. Hugh Taylor's asked an interesting question, which is whether there's any pattern in the evidence related to deaths of younger people, uh, because the, it's one of the uh, sort of uh, the, often deaths of younger patients from COVID uh, uh, expressed as outliers or surprises. Do we, is there any pattern that anyone has been able to identify uh, linking uh, the predisposition or lifestyle conditions or, or whatever uh, to the deaths of younger people? Did everybody get kicked out? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, did. Sure there. I believe so. Please be back. So, <laughs> I, think, uh, so, I think Zoom had a moment. <laughs> yeah, so Stephen, what I said in case you didn't get it was... I disappeared at that moment, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about the cases in Britain as to whether there were any pre-morbidities, but some of my colleagues who worked in Wuhan and in the uh, Chinese setup said, some of the young people had illnesses already, uh, but I'm not aware that a clear pattern has emerged. 
But to go back to my earlier answer on this, it is conceivable that younger people may have rare inherited disorders that have not yet manifest themselves. Thank you. And it, it, this is all presumably going to your core point that this is about partly it's about the uh, the mutation of the virus, and it's also about understanding the different genetic makeup of the, of the individual patient and understanding yes. the match between the two. And I with you, and it's more likely that the human is the cause of the adverse response than the virus. So the virus is the trigger. Which inevitably means that it, uh, well, it means that it's an important part of the research of understanding the condition. Exactly. But it, but it, it's, it takes longer for us to get to make that actionable uh, research. Absolutely. Okay. Now, uh, what I, apparently it's the 40-minute gap. I don't, we were actually been on for about an hour and a half, so I don't quite know how um, Zoom calculated it for 40 minutes, but I apologize about that. Uh, what it does mean is that we've lost all the chat. So what I'm going to ask is, is there... Uh, uh, Yes. Oh, okay. So, Helen Bevan. No, no, not sure what that's about. Okay. Apologies to all. That's from our people. Uh, so, but it does mean that we've lost the chat. Uh, can I just ask on, on the, we've talked about therapies and understanding why the condition develops. We've talked less about the, uh, whether there's any application of uh, genomic science to testing and the quick development in particular of the antibody test, which is the thing that policymakers are obviously concerned about. Is there any application of genomic science to, to that or is that uh, a, in effect a parallel science? Hmm. Do you want to go first? I don't know. I, I, I think there's less of an impact on that, the, 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 everybody knows what they want the antibody test to do. They just need to get it in a cheap enough and simple enough form uh, that is reliable. So yeah. uh, I, I might have missed something there, Mark. Uh, so I agree with what you said there, Ewan. I mean, I think uh, there's some concern that the current test that's being looked at may not be um, as valuable as it was hoped. Uh, then the, in terms of the antibody, then there's actually testing for the presence of the virus. The reason that knowing the antibody test is important is that allows you to know which health workers or key workers have been exposed and had the infection and are immune so that they can be in the place of work. The testing for the presence of the virus allows you to exclude people appropriately from uh, placing others at risk. Um, and the scale up of the testing for the presence of the virus that has been a challenge. I'm aware of various research endeavors to use more advanced ways of doing this quicker, um, but they're yet to come to fruition. And of course, um, Stephen, these things can only be developed in a pandemic or, or sort of set of circumstances where there is an infection because you have to develop it specifically. Yeah. And I think the only other thing to add on that is around um, sort of false positives and false negatives that. Um, it sounds like something with a 1% false positive or false negative rate is pretty good, you know, 99%. Once you start doing 100,000 uh, tests a day or a million a week, um, you start getting into very large numbers of people who've got a mistaken diagnosis and are therefore yes. either going back to work when they shouldn't be and so on. So a lot of the work is really both around the logistics of trying to scale up um, and mobilize the national system that Ewan alluded to earlier, um, but also um, trying to drive those false positive and false negative rates down to the point where you can really do it at scale confidently. Presumably one of the other points about the antibody test is that it also, in the fullness of time, that's going to be an essential piece of, uh, of, it's the denominator that works out, that identifies those people or the, the prevalence of relatively mild symptoms that won't be picked up any other way because no one's going to present for treatment in these circumstances. Yes, that's true, Stephen. And the other thing that's also true is that the most interesting understanding of the human genomic response might be the comparison of age-matched severely affected individuals with those who have a very, very mild course. So what is the distinguishing factor between those who end up in the ITU and those who have a very mild infection recover quickly and, and may have some protection against this particular infection? So that, that 
uh, strategy for the human program I was outlining. Yeah. And is that, I mean, in terms of timescales for the development of that level of understanding, it, it, it's obviously nothing, it's obviously irrelevant in the context of relaxing lockdown over the next few weeks. Yeah. Is, is that something that we can realistically look for in order to understand our exposure to a second round of this next winter, or is that timescale yes. equally unrealistic? No, I think that the endeavours that Ewan outlined earlier that are international, um, alongside what we're going to do here in the United Kingdom, which will involve whole genome sequencing, that gives us a good platform to make some early observations. If there are things that are to be found, for example, some low-hanging fruit, if so to speak, uh, then uh, that may inform elements of our response. It might, Stephen, also highlight potential targets where we could repurpose a medicine that we've not thought of because they weren't intuitive or our prior knowledge didn't give us a base for that. Presumably we're all uh, on, uh, I mean, <laughs> no, let me ask the question more neutrally. Is the doctor in Marseille onto anything or is he not onto anything? Well, the, um, the doctor in Marseille's uh, test on hydroxychloroquine is being put forward in a, uh, a, a, in a bigger study at the moment. Uh, you may have seen the advocacy of the President of the United States for the treatment. Um, I think we need, an, we need another bunch of evidence to get going on that, to be honest. Although, it is the case that drugs, those anti-malarial group of drugs, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, are disease-modifying in other sets, and they are disease-modifying in immune disorders. Ewan, did you have something on yeah, that? Just to say that the, the drug is one of the arms, current arms of the UK trial and the That's WHO right. trial. So there are two trials. So we'll, we will know either way. Um, I wouldn't, it doesn't look like the best shot on goal, but we will know. In, in if you were advocating it, you'd have paid quite a lot of money to avoid having the President of the United States endorse it. Well, I, I don't think he's not a clinical, uh, you, you know, I think he, yeah, his, yeah. His, <laughs> his information, his, uh, his opinion has very little um, uh, additional information on whether the trial will be successful or not. Agreed. Uh, we're coming to the end, but Tim Hubbard has raised his hand again. So uh, he's a proper clinician. Tim, do you want to uh, no, ask I'm your question? No, I'm not a clinician. No, I'm a bioinformatician like you. And um, no, this business about the vaccine, about a the proper scientist in that case, Tim. Um, the antibody tests—they're being rejected as being not high enough standard. But on false positive and false negatives rates. You know, combining that with all the economics and the transmission, do we need a perfect test? Are we being too conservative in these assessments of these tests? An MHRA standard in the health service for what they would normally deploy may be too high, maybe unrealistic, whereas an antibody test with a lower efficacy may be enough to tilt the balance of, of um, the epidemic and allow us to put the economy back to work um, while still maintaining health, the you know, security of the health system and reasonably protect the population. Anybody have any opinions on that? So, I mean, I just think it's, it, uh, there is an incredibly interesting question for every single government coming up once you've got the effective reproduction rate down to enough that you're not going to swamp your healthcare system what do you do next? And you can, you know, I think you can see an awful lot of governments trying to work this through and just think about it. So I think we're going to need a lot of different tools. Again, international, I know it sounds a bit weird, but effectively governments will make different decisions and then we need to analyze the results of those decisions and see which one works and not have the assumption. There's a tremendous assumption that, that somehow different things will work in different ways in different countries. That's that's un incredibly unlikely. Humans are humans, the virus is the virus. And so really we've we've got to look for the 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 ways to limit the infection cycle and then the ways to treat the virus better. And this is where I think international collaboration on the research is one thing, but also international collaboration on what you might broadly call exit strategies. Um, though I am very taken by Jeremy Farrar, Jeremy Farrar, the head of the Wellcome Trusts, 
pithy one-liner, which is that the exit strategy for this is science. That is the current biology of the virus combined with the current biology of humans is just not compatible. Um, so we need, to, we need to have scientific insight to change either the virus biology or the human biology or, or both um, uh, to, to exit from here. Okay, the pledge at the beginning was that we would conclude this at nine o'clock and uh, that time has now arrived. So I am going to draw it to a close with a huge thank you uh, to Chris Wigley from Genomics England, Ewan Burney from the European Biometrics Institute and Samar Caulfield uh, also from Genomics England. Uh, this has been an extremely interesting, valuable conversation and uh, we're all extremely grateful to all three of our guests for having uh, led us uh, down these roads. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.